It's the Muppeturgy Podcast with a very special pilot episode about the Muppet Valentine Show. Welcome or welcome back to the Muppeturgy Podcast. Uh, we are your hosts and still finding our footing, so please bear with us. I am David Levy, and with me here today are Adam Grossworth. I'm Christy Bauer. I'm Michal Richardson. And today, as sort of a pilot for what our regular episodes are going to sound like, we are going to focus on one of the many pilots that were done for The Muppet Show, which is The Muppets Valentine Show, which we chose somewhat arbitrarily because of the date that this is going to drop, which will be on Valentine's Day, which, by the way, also my birthday. Happy birthday. Happy early Thank birthday. Uh, Muppets Valentine's Show aired on ABC on January 30th, 1974. And I know Adam has some information about the original airing. So just, in, I mean, in general, first, um, it's pretty interesting to me, I think to most people our age and, and younger, like the Muppets are mostly, mostly start to exist with Sesame Street and the Muppet Show, but that's not true. Like the Muppets were around for a long time and on TV for a long time and like really popular. It's just that I think those things sort of preceded home video. And so they sort of don't exist with like any kind of cultural footprint. It, it sort of like seems weird to me to us now that that like the Muppets could have a primetime TV special before there was a Muppet show. Um, but they could. Like they were actually like super popular from doing talk shows and um I mean Sesame Street had been on for five years at this point also. But you know, they they did TV commercials and they were on Ed Sullivan and the Jimmy Dean show and um we'll put some YouTube clips on our website of some of that. Um but yeah so like they were they were a thing for like a long time before the stuff that we're talking about, um, which I just find interesting, sort of the way that that a lot of that has disappeared from the culture, and like now thanks to YouTube, it's it can be found again. But so that's sort of where we are in in 1974 with the Muppets as a as celebrities, <laughs> um, and and also like because of the frame of the Muppet Show is vaudeville, I think I tend to think of it as this throwback, you know, to that. But it's actually like very deeply of its time in the 70s as a variety show. Um, as this sort of deeply weird moment in television, which I also find sort of strange just thinking about the fact that there were only three channels or like three networks and then, you know, a couple of local um, channels that you would have. And like looking at it from 2021 where there are, you know, we have so many streaming services and so many channels and and so much content. The idea that something this weird would happen when there are this few options um, and not just the Muppets, but like this was concurrent with um, things like Sonny and Cher being on TV and um, like variety shows in general. Like they were really just filling the time and there wasn't actually that much time to fill. Um, I just find that sort of intriguing um, compared to today's TV landscape. So I did actually look up what was playing on the night of January 30th, 1974 on the three channels. <laughs> um, the Muppets of Valentine's uh, Valentine's special did in fact run opposite the Sunny and Cher comedy hour, uh, season three, episode 18, um, which was an hour long, obviously an hour long. Um, and it was followed on ABC by a rerun of the cricket in Times Square, uh, Chuck Jones animated special based on a children's book that I've never heard of, but I'm also weird with things like children's books. Apparently it's a classic. And on NBC, a cop show I'd never heard of called Chase, which apparently ran for two seasons. And these were followed on all three networks by President Nixon's State of the Union Address, which wow. delights me that wow. you could watch the Muppets Valentine special followed by President Nixon's State of the Union Address. And also, if you were watching TV in 1974, you could not change the channel and watch anything other than President Nixon's State of the Union Address. Your only <laughs> option was to watch it or turn the TV off. It was a so, red-letter evening for television. Right? You know, the wildest part of that entire thing is that they made a Valentine's Day show f for two weeks before Valentine's Day. Yeah. Also strange. Uh, so while we're talking context, I also think it's worth noting, although this is considered the first pilot for The Muppet Show, this was not the first Muppet primetime TV special. There had already been uh, a couple, including Hey Cinderella and The Great Santa Claus Switch, which will become relevant when we talk about where some of these characters come from. In addition to variety shows like Sunny and Cher, I think the other real clear antecedent to this is morning chat shows like Today. And in fact, The Muppets had a regular gig on the Today Show 
uh, a few years prior to this when when they first moved from Washington to New York. And I was trying to find images of what the Today Show set looked like at the end of the 60s. And I couldn't find a really good one. But my memory of it is that at least part of it was sort of set up like someone's living room in the way that this show is. Uh, because I, I spent a lot of time the first couple times that I watched the Valentine's special trying to figure out, like, what what is this environment supposed to remind us of? Because it's set up like a living room, but it's also sort of outside, kind of like a greenhouse. There's no roof. You can see the sky. Uh, but I do think that that's a little bit of a nod to shows like the Today Show that are sort of at the juncture of what we think of as talk shows and, and variety shows, um, and especially the segments where Mia's sitting on the couch chatting with various Muppets felt like that to me. That's helpful context, because one of uh, one thing I wrote down for my overall impression of this is, where are they? Is it a house? Are they outside? It's disorienting for us if we're used to watching the Muppet Show to see them not in a theater and just kind of hanging around. When Mia comes around and says, "Is it always like this around here?" and I, I don't know what is around here mean. So that helps. Thank you. Right, and like, do they live there? Is it a? Is it their workplace? Who knows? Have they been institutionalized there? It kind of reminded me of a Muppet Family Christmas from much later, right? Except like that that's established as like somebody's home with people who make sense to be there. And there is, there is a getting ahead of ourselves, like there is a bit where like Mia is arriving and it's, you know, it's like she's arriving at their house, but why did they all live together? I mean, none of this actually matters. There's no plot, but I mean, it's, it is weird, particularly to have these characters who at least we don't know. I mean, and I think some of them had more context for the viewers at the time from other appearances, but um, it definitely is like, what, who are you all? and Why, why is any of this happening? The third time that I watched it, I watched it, with the the added uh, context of pretending that the Mia Farrow was going into some sort of strange witness protection or joining a cult, <laughs> because I, I definitely so the 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 diffuse energy in the room reminds me of what Scientology must be like. When she has that affect about her. I mean, not yeah. to, not to, I don't want to go too hard on Mia Farrow, but since you brought it up, it's also weird that she clearly knows all of these characters from before. Like, it's not that she's meeting them for the first time. It's Mia's coming, and then she seems to, except for Ernie and Bert, whose name she confuses, yeah. <laughs> she's pretty clear on who everyone else is. But we are getting way ahead of ourselves. Let's talk a little bit about Mia Farrow as the choice of guest star. She had been a very hot young star, becoming famous in her teenage years uh, as the star of Peyton Place and as a model. She's the daughter of famous parents. Her dad is director John Farrow. Her mother is actress Maureen O'Sullivan. Uh, and she had her sort of mega major breakthrough in Rosemary's Baby in 1968. Um, although by that point, she had already been married to Frank Sinatra for a few years. So breakthrough is a relative term. Uh, and in fact, they get divorced in 1968, uh, possibly because Sinatra was really uncomfortable with the amount of attention that she was getting, because uh, this was not at one of his particular peaks. At the time, this special is being recorded She's getting ready for the release of Great Gatsby, which will come out in March. So the the month following, well, I guess a month and a half following this, this special's air. So uh, from a promotional standpoint, it makes sense why she's doing it. In terms of why, like how they got her, other than the fact that she had something to promote, it's not super clear to me if she had a particular connection to the Muppets. I, I don't know if anyone has theories. I have nothing. Um She's also very pregnant, yeah. Which will come up, and I mean that's fine. Like obviously, you know, she can work, but like it just it it because they they talk about it. It just like sort of adds another layer to like the whole thing of of why this person, why now? Yeah, I was very curious about whether that's something that would even be seen on TV. It like it it seems so unusual for the time. Be like we got a, a beautiful young guest star, and here she is, and she's eight months pregnant. Uh, it it feels a little out of place and a little surprising. Again, not that she can't work while seven or eight months pregnant. She does a lovely job, and uh, it's also just kind of a very obvious part of the show that's unexpected. Anyway, we are far afield, and it's time to get things started. It's time to get things started. So this is our segment where we talk about our overall impressions of the show, which we should probably move earlier in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why? 
Christy, I think you've said the least of us so far. So why don't you start with your overall impressions of the Muppet Valentine's show? Sure. So we've already uh, name dropped a few of the uh, strange characters who populate this particular episode. And I, I think that's the thing that makes this episode the most remarkable as a potential pilot for the Muppet show is the only uh, true fixture of the Muppet show in it is Kermit. It's full of these other characters who are from other sources who do uh, appear later in various guises, but, uh, but it, it it's really strange. It, like it, it sort of feels like it, it, it made me question. So there's that moment in the Muppet movie where Robin asks Kermit if uh, the, the, the Muppet movie is the uh, actual story of how, how the Muppets got started. And Kermit's like, well, it's sort of approximately how it happened. This is how I actually imagined that it happened. Like I imagine that the Kermit was working in some like, you know, mid level market, like Cleveland or something. And like the, this group of Muppets feel like Cleveland Muppets to me. <laughs> like Kermit, the Kermit doesn't. No offense, Cleveland. <laughs> sure. Or, you know, or Louisville Muppets. I'm from Louisville. Well, I'll, I'll fall on my, my own sword. Um, but but they, it feels like Kermit hasn't found his people yet. And so Kermit's energy is strange as part of this ecosystem. So I'm going to be really curious to hear what you all think of this particular group as a group. I mean, they're so mean to Kermit, too. They, they ignore him. They belittle him. Yeah. And then... Uh, it's just it, he really is the outsider in a way that is sort of the reverse of what we're used to where in a gang of outsiders Kermit's usually the one who's sort of the most stable and normal and and, and mainstream-ish uh so that that was weird to me well and he also would have been like the I mean I don't know about all these secondary characters but like Kermit has been around like to an yeah, audience, at this point, he's quite famous. Yeah, to an audience watching this at the time, like Kermit is the star. Or right. is star. it wouldn't make sense not to include him, but it wasn't accepted that he's in charge of this wacky right. band of Muppets necessarily. But it's also it's weird that they would also treat him badly because he's actually like he's he's on par with Mia Farrow at this, at this point. It's strange. <laughs> You're waiting for Kermit to say, "Do you have any idea who I am?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also I, I keep thinking about like the the structure or lack of structure in this show is really interesting to me because to the extent that it's a pilot i wonder like what are the elements that they saw as being the things that would carry over from show to show like would every episode be wally writing a screenplay about a different concept which is sort of on the sesame street model right where each episode kind of had a theme uh in addition to a letter and a number um, <laughs> Elmo grows up to be Wally today and right. Wally wants to learn about love but it's just it, it feels to me like it would be a really hard uh, concept to replicate week after week after week year after year uh, and so in some ways I feel like they kind of lucked out by it flopping uh, and, and to say that it flopped I actually have no idea what kind of numbers it did in terms of uh, people watching it I looked it did not get reviewed or even mentioned in the New York Times uh, I have no idea what the reception was, but clearly it wasn't good enough for anyone to put up the money to turn it into a regular show. Uh, and I don't think I would have either had I been in a decision-making capacity at the time. Um, it, it just felt like there are moments that are are a lot of fun. There are moments that made me laugh out loud, but my overall impression is that it's like a little bit formless. And to the extent that any of the characters have even a second dimension, none of them are really people that I feel like I want to get to know in a you know deeper, more nuanced way. Yeah, I really like uh, Christie's innovative idea there that what, what they actually are is, <laughs> this is the, the Cleveland Muppets. And it makes sense that Wally is in charge of the Cleveland Muppets. Like he seems like a guy who tried living in New York for one summer and it's like, you know what? I'm actually going to go back to my hometown and be a big fish there. And he's the big fish in Cleveland. His energy reminded me of the the Fred Willard character in A Mighty Wind. Like I I sort of expected him to look up at a certain point and go, "Hey, what happened?" I do have a I have a clip. We keep we keep mentioning Wally, and you know if you haven't seen this, you don't know who Wally is because he did not stick around. 
Um, and we'll put, um, assuming this is not going to be on Disney Plus, we'll put a link, uh, a YouTube link on our website if you all want to watch this. But so Wally is this sort of like, what would you guys say, beatnik, hippie? Yeah, he's a hippie and a beatnik. More beatnik than hippie. He already feels dated to me in in seventy four, um, and he's writing. He's like trying to write something about Valentine, like a screenplay, I guess, about Valentine's Day. Um, and he's the frame for this whole thing. Um, and so I clipped from the beginning of the episode where we meet him, uh, and he is now. You know what he is? He's Walter. He's Walter from the new Muppet movie, grown up and stoned. Well, can we give a visual description? I I feel like if people haven't seen this and they need to know why we're complaining about Wally, they need to know that he is kind of this uh, anything Muppet who could be anybody, but he's also wearing a medallion necklace over a flowered shirt, over a white turtleneck and sunglasses. And he has this kind of unkempt hair and he has, he makes these wild movements with these little annoyingly formless art. I have this thing with Wally's arms where they're like overstuffed, so they move in this clumsy way. And his hands also are very like doll-like and overstuffed and not Muppety. And, and he just gestures with his arms in this not graceful way and talks about, he wants to know what love is and let's write a script about love. Okay. Right. And he's voiced by Joe And he also never gets up from his chair, right? He's always at that typewriter for the entire episode. Right. Yeah, he's stuck to that typewriter. <laughs> So, so here's a clip uh, which introduces uh, Wally, who I think we all can agree is one of our least favorite Muppets ever. Um, and my new favorite Muppet of all time is also introduced in this clip. Love. Well, what can I say about love? Don't look at me. I never touch this stuff. And it never touches me. Um, sorry about that, Drew. That's okay. I still got myself pity. He's no help. I'm no help. I would die for Droop. I would kill for Droop. I'm so <laughs> sad that Droop did not become a regular. Droop is the best. Yeah, and I I was hoping that clip would go on a little longer because he just kept echoing everything that Wally said. I'm no help. He's no help. I'm no help. Go ask George. I'll ask George. Yeah, go ask George. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's just mocking for the sake of mocking and just for the sake of self-loathing. And yeah, I would also die for Droop. He's delightful. This might be a good time to move into our segment where we talk about the important introductions and uh, other things that will become uh, relevant in our ongoing quest to better understand the Muppets. Ready, three, two, one, fire! It's a cannon. Because these things are, are cannon. Get it. Get it. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, let's start with Droop, since we're already on the topic of Droop, uh, who, by the way, I think people will recognize if if we show you the picture, and there will be one on our website, and you should go look at it. Uh, he has his, his roots in the Great Santa Claus, which where he was one of the Frackles, which is the same band of monsters that, that Gonzo graduated from, and that uh, basically all of the monsters you think of as sort of like the Muppet Show chorus monsters uh originated as frackles but drew put on a, a dress shirt and threw on his purple brooklyn sweatshirt over the dress shirt and uh managed to step out of the chorus and here we have him and what's interesting to me is that even though droop's personality basically disappears as he fades back into the course of the muppet show this design where he's basically just a snout with eyes is clearly a favorite design of the muppets because we get variations on it all throughout the Muppet show. We get variations on it into the future. If you remember on Muppets tonight, the character of Nigel is basically oh, yeah. droop with a tuxedo. Uh, there's something very fun and expressive about a character whose nose is also his face. He's really cute. He loves that crumpet. I, I love the relationship between him and the crumpet. That's what love is. Oh yeah. The crumpet. We gotta talk about the crumpet. I clipped. Talk about the crumpet. I, oh, I just I clipped. It. It's, it, well, it's the crumpet's gonna lead into like a whole weird Mia Farrow thing, um, because it, it's kind of a long clip. Um, but let's just play it because I can't even explain it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure Mia's come a long way. Yes, what she needs is a nice cup of tea. Oh, right? thank you, Mildred. Oh. I would love a cup of tea. Oh, and I brought you some crumpets oh, too. Oh, wonderful! 
Yeah, we used to have a crumpet, but it died. What? You have a cookie, my dear. Oh, right thank you. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What's that? That's the crumpet that died. No, I didn't. The crumpet lives. Uh, swell. Uh, here, Rufus, fetch. You threw the living crumpet. <laughs> Is it always like this around here, Mildred? Always. Oh, and it's so embarrassing. No, no, I love it. It reminds me of home with all my little children running around. Uh, you got kids like them? Well... Sort of. It's weird, lady. Uh, weird! Uh, tell me, Mia, tell me, uh, how many children do you have? Three. Now, uh, there's a new one due in March. Oh, how precious. Well, some girls have all the luck. Oh, takes a little more than luck, Mildred. Yes, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> hey, Mia? I guess I could just pick up the clips, but like the whole thing together yeah. just like, speaks to the who is this for of all of this for me. <laughs> And if, like if the crumpet bit feels almost improvised, like they, the crumpet is a is a muppet, in case you couldn't tell. Which a is a is a meatball. Like it's not, a, I don't know what that was supposed to be. So it's not like totally improvised, but like it didn't, it didn't feel scripted or thought through really in any way. Um, Mia didn't seem to know what was happening. I don't know. The whole thing is so strange, and then the whole thing about her pregnancy is even stranger, but like in a whole new way. And it's all one shot. Like it just it just keeps happening. I, yeah, that entire clip was relevant. I I support you clipping that entire thing. <laughs> I, I do think that the Muppets at this point felt like one of their strong suits was when they were ad-libbing opposite a human being who wasn't part of the regular Muppet gang. That's part of what made Rolf so popular on the Jimmy Dean show. That's part of why they kept getting invited onto all these different talk shows like Johnny Carson and, and the Today Show and uh, Ed Sullivan. And so I think they were probably trying to replicate that a little bit. And uh, I think it's a combination of it's a lot harder when it's not just a one person talking to one Muppet. And also, I don't know that this is necessarily Mia Farrow's sure. skill set, but I, I, but I suspect that's what's going on there is that it's only semi-scripted. Mia probably, they probably, you know, they probably told Mia, just go with it and we'll react to you and you'll react to us and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. She is very sweet with the Muppets. Like she's very sincere and looks them in the eye and seems very happy to be interacting with them. Yeah, I mean, it's Mildred made that creepy, not Mia. But like, it's just, I don't know. It's very, it's very odd. Yeah, and I should say, I mean, we, you know, this will come up again. I'm sure. Like the, the, the Muppet performers then and now are like incredibly skilled improvisers. That was just not a good example of it. That was a quintessential Mildred clip, though. Absolutely, and it's also an an interesting moment in the development of Muppet food <laughs> because there's uh, there will continue to be more Muppets that are food and the question of are they friends or are they to be eaten or both uh, is one that might feel complicated but is less so when you think about uh, in sort of the Muppet prehistory how often their sketches involve a monster eating a different Muppet or just a Muppet eating another Muppet so maybe it's less weird for Muppets that like their lettuce sings a song before it becomes salad. I don't know. <laughs> so all Muppets are both friends and food. Exactly. <laughs> so another character that was introduced in that clip, or at least introduced in the context of this podcast, in that clip was Rufus, which is uh, the dog uh, that you hear barking. And Rufus is the only Muppet in this episode who uh, speaks like the animal that it is as opposed to speaking English. And Rufus has a whole shtick with Mia that I found painfully unfunny where he sort of auditions to be her dog. But what I think is is interesting is that the Muppets, even though they already have a very famous dog in in the person of Rolf, who at, at, prior to Sesame Street was probably the second most famous Muppet after after Kermit, like they, they seem really determined to make a more dog-like dog Muppet happen because uh, once we get into the regular Muppet show, we meet Muppy who looks very much like Rufus. And then a couple years later, Muppy gets replaced by Fufu. Who sometimes is a real dog. They're very dedicated to this premise. Yes. Muppy also sometimes was a real dog, I think. Yeah. Um, And then, and then we get into the like ultimate weirdness in, 
the Muppets Take Manhattan, where Rolf runs the kennel, which is filled with a mixture of actual dogs and Muppet dogs. So there's just, uh, it makes me uncomfortable. Not nearly as uncomfortable as the clip that I shared with uh, the rest of these folks of an early uh, Rolf appearance on Jimmy Dean where he flirts with Lassie. Miss Lassie? Miss Lassie is president of the New York Fan Club. Uh, I would like to uh, hereby give you this all-purpose key. It's, It's the key to the city. It's the key to my heart. It's the key to my kennel. (laughs) because like if there's anything weirder than muppets eating muppet food it's muppets getting horny with the real life thing that the muppet is Uh, so uh other characters we have thog thog is also an alumnus of the great santa claus switch Uh, thog is the is one of the full body muppets uh, he's big, he's blue, he's got floppy ears. To me, he'll always be remembered as the monster who danced with Loretta Swit to I Feel the Earth Move Under My Feet. It seems to me like like Thog is basically just a variation on Snuffleupagus. Like my mom was in the other room and she walked in and, and was like, That's, that's she, she thought she'd heard Snuffleupagus. <laughs> oh. Huh. That makes sense. I never occurred to me, but I totally buy it. I mean, I see the correlation, and also they're they're different performers and different designs. But I I, I get well, it. Well, well, no, the, it, not originally. Right, Jerry Nelson was the original Snuffleupagus. Oh, yeah, fair. Maybe that's what your mom was. Thinking. Original front half of Snuffleupagus. <laughs> right. <laughs> Richard Hunt was the original rear half of Snuffleupagus. <laughs> but yeah, Thog is this. Sweetheart, I will always think of him as the the monster that Harvey Corman's ringmaster character is trying to subdue in his little act. When we'll get to that in the Harvey Corman episode, but that was my my first impression of his lovely little dance with Mia Farrow was like, this is sweet. Why is she not Harvey Corman? <laughs> <laughs> Why is he not Sweetums? Couldn't he eat her? That was actually that was my thought. <laughs> well, and it is interesting that. That of all the full body Muppets, Sweetums is the one who did break out and have more of a career. I don't know exactly why that is, but maybe we'll discover it as we get into the Muppet Show proper. Yeah, I mean, Thog is a maybe a mid level Muppet star. I have my my Palisades Thog toy right behind me. I got it out so I could admire it during this recording. He's one of my favorites always. So uh, let's go from a, a favorite to a uh, apparently often derided character. Michal, tell us about Miss Mousy. Uh, Miss Mousy is, uh, I think, set up in early episodes as kind of a, a foil for Miss Piggy, but she just she doesn't have that same appeal. She's and she's supposed to be flirty, but also she's kind of wearing this little it that makes her seem like she's also kind of a grandma she's a confusing little mouse um and she's a love interest for kermit when i think uh kermit's uh, destined to find a much more passionate love affair in the future so it's it's a little bit odd that he's asking miss mousy to marry him when uh he has a multi-decade relationship ahead of him yeah miss mousy's look basically is ma otter's look yeah <laughs> Yeah, it would be a bit of a surprise for Ma Otter to suddenly get a marriage proposal. Although Ma Otter is a kick-ass lady. Everybody should propose to Ma Otter. And of course, uh, Ma Otter from Emmett Otter's Jungman Christmas is still a couple years in the future. That's from 1977. Well, then maybe her look was based on Miss Mousy. Uh, maybe. Christy, talk to us about Mildred. Oh my gosh, I have so many feelings about Mildred. <laughs> Mildred has big hyacinth bouquet energy. Mildred is is very um, prissy and officious. And she has, similarly to Droop, she has sort of like a, a, a long beaky face. Like she almost reminded me of uh, in, in Beetlejuice when they turn into the, like the scary long beaky faces. Um, but she's, in, in this episode in particular, I mean, like in that clip, she's so creepy. 
talking about how jealous she is that Mia Farrow is pregnant, <laughs> which just doesn't seem like a sentiment that a, a Muppet would have. She feels to me like, uh, like big spinster school secretary energy. Yeah. And she sticks around, right? Like she's on the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she becomes sort of a background character. Um, but for Mildred and George, who both turn up a lot in the first season of the Muppet show. And then I think are rarely seen after um, they are frequently dance partners in the, at the dance sketch. So as much as uh, George discovers his love for his mop in this episode, um, he has uh, maybe something going on with Mildred after this. I don't know if she's kind of settled for the nearest available thing, which is George. When she she clearly has some desires that are not being met when we meet her in this episode. And then in the 80s, uh, when Muppet Magazine was a thing, Mildred was the receptionist for Muppet Magazine. Uh, Muppet Magazine was an actual magazine, but it had sort of like a fictional uh like it had stories about how the magazine got made as part of the magazine so uh oh. she fit in that way she she seems she comes off as like sort of like patrician right she kind of has that mid-atlantic accent i think that was like part of the joke of pairing her with george who is the you know sort of brooklyn working class janitor so it's sort of weird to me that she would wind up as a receptionist not that there's anything wrong with being a receptionist right her whole her whole deal is like you know the upturned pointy nose and the pearls and interesting that they would put her in that role i mean i think really the bigger story of mildred is that she's uh an example of the muppets struggling to create memorable female characters who stick around yeah i think when you have male performers who are uh performing female characters you end up with like uh little flirty ladies like miss mousy or patrician uh, stereotypical ladies like Mildred and uh, until you hire more female puppeteers uh, this is what you get yeah which they still have not done so they're, they're still working on it anyway <laughs> and do we want to say anything else about George we mentioned George as the janitor and George does recur into the Muppet show uh, I guess does he just get replaced by Beauregard or did he they... gets replaced as janitor by Beauregard although George does still show up in the background uh, beyond the Muppet Show, into I think even Muppets Most Wanted. Yeah, I mean he's a he's an older he's an older humanoid Muppet, so sort of in the Stadler and Waldorf uh, mode. And uh, here is a clip. Everybody loves somebody. Yeah, yeah, sure, lady. Ugh. Now wait a minute. Let's talk about this, huh? Put down that mop. Hey, hands off! Nobody touches this mop. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm. I didn't know. You know now. Yeah, I won't do it again. Don't do it again. Oh. Hey, George, I just mm. thought of something. You you do love somebody, or something. Mm. You love your mop. Oh, that's crazy. I don't love this mop. It's a good mop. It's useful. It's cute. See? Mm. You do love your mop. Oh, go on. We just like being together. That's what love is, George. No. Yeah. I mean, I love my mop. You love your mop. It is um, kind of alarming how much he loves this inanimate object, and you do kind of have to wonder what he does with it when he's off camera. But he, he's so earnest in when, and the, the clip is lovely, but we're, what we're not getting is uh, Frank Oz's beautiful puppeteering here. And the way that George George's eyes and his uh, his eyelids go up when she says you love your mop, and his eyes widen. He's like, oh, you're right. I love this mop. <laughs> He's been like cuddling it and saying that it's cute and saying we just like spending time together. Like he's Frank Oz is doing so much acting as George. And yes, the first time that I watched it, I did not get all of the performance aspect because I was kind of weirded out that he loves a mop, but. Uh, the second time around, I was able to admire the performance, and it it is admirable. I I just like I related to a man who has strong feelings about cleaning supplies. <laughs> and I was like, you go, and then it leads into a song, which we'll get to. And I was like, now it's creepy. Like now you've gone too far because <laughs> you're doing a whole number about it. And he's he's dancing with a mop. Like if you can if you can dance with a, a broom or a vacuum cleaner, you can you can dance with a mop. 
it's I think it's lovely. I also think that this is a great example of the kind of Muppet sketch that makes the Muppets a favorite of many a queer person, uh, which is not to say that, you know, George is gay for his mop, although I'm not not saying I that. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much what they're saying. <laughs> but, but the idea that, that you know, we, we talk a lot about how the Muppets are a gang of outsiders and how they're very welcoming and all embracing. And, and here where it's explicitly in the context of something about love and dare I say sexuality, uh, I, I do think that this is the kind of signal that happens again and again and again over the course of uh, really the entire career of the Muppets from some of the earliest like Sam and friends sketches right up to today that says, you know, it's okay. If uh, what you love is not what everyone else loves. It's okay. If some days you rearrange your face and hair and go from being a boy to being a girl, to being a monster, like all of these things are okay. You're still part of our family. And I actually meant to talk about this in our intro episode when I talk about the things that I love about the Muppets and why the Muppets have sort of stayed with me. But I do think that there's, uh, we did talk a little bit about their emphasis on chosen family, but I think it's that plus their emphasis on sort of the fluidity of identity and uh, and the different meanings of love. And all of these things really sort of add up to uh, a somewhat unintentional, like queer manifesto. Uh, and it's been really sweet in the last couple of years, as Frank Oz has has been on Twitter more and more, to watch him come to understand how powerful that's been. Because, uh, you know, he started out saying, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. That's not what we meant. That's not what Bert and Ernie are. And as people explain that that may not have been your intention, but that's how it's come across to generations of people. And that's been really powerful and important to us. Frank Oz has come around to say, you know what, like, that's wonderful. And I will, I will support that. And, and, and that's been really meaningful for me to see uh, him sort of grow into that as well. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> I think that, that. Uh, so I think the one last part of our uh, talk about canon, I want to talk about Kuzbane. So my, my notes uh, that I was taking when I was watching say in all caps, Kuzbane, thank God. <laughs> because I was not enjoying this episode and I was so happy to see it. Um, I talked in our intro about my memory being generally bad, um, but this is one of those sketches that like, I, I just remember from childhood forever. Um, they they reuse it in the Muppet Show, and I, I feel like maybe even on Sesame Street, that can't be true. It's Possibly pretty, on Saturday Night Live? Maybe, yeah. It's pretty adult. Um, Kuzbane is, uh, it's the planet Kuzbane, and I... Um, and I believe that these puppets and maybe and some of the words, the made up words, recur sort of throughout Muppet history. Also, it's Kermit in his reporter mode with the little trench coat, which is so cute, um, reporting, um, witnessing the the rarely seen mating ritual of the the Kuzbanians, um, the the Galio hoop hoop. Um, and uh, long story short, it's two um, alien Muppets who. Uh, do a little mating dance and then run towards each other and explode and uh, alien babies appear. And it's very silly and a little bit dirty and the babies are really, really cute. And like, if you're a kid, it's just goofy and you don't really get the sex part. Um, and the puppets are very cute and very, fun. you know, they're doing funny dances. And if you're a grown up, it's like, Oh, they're fucking. And uh, it works on like every level. And I love it. I do like that. The one of the Kuzbanian puppets has the, the sort of rotating, running leg contraption that uh, you might remember from the windmills of my mind sketch, which is another one that imprinted on me deeply that I, you know, never forgot. Interestingly, I don't know if that's connected. A tiny detail that I found interesting about uh, Kermit in this sketch was his coat had like a furry fuzzy collar, which in the Sesame Street iteration of him doing the reporter, it's just a trench coat, but this looks more like he's like, Ned Ryerson and Groundhog Day. Huh. So it makes me wonder if, if Kuzbane is a colder climate. Maybe. It might just be for show. That's that's Kermit's part of the whole mating ritual situation. But yeah, this is one that they reused on the Muppet Show uh, later, so it'll come up again uh, fairly soon for us. And, um, and I think that they have been doing in other places. Yeah, I was going to say, it's worth noting that uh, a number of their sketches, they would work out and iterate over different appearances on different variety shows. And then uh, on Sesame street on the Muppet show, uh, some of them 
like Menomina changed quite a bit. Some of them, like this one, uh, only have minor tweaks. I don't know. I think it's interesting to to watch them refine their craft by watching older versions and newer versions and seeing, you know, what they thought needed to be tweaked or edited. Yeah. Adam, let's let's move on to our musical segment. Okay. I didn't need to intro that, but you know, the clip is so much fun. So there are five songs in this episode, not counting the sort of groovy scene change music, which I was not able to identify. So I'm going to assume was written for this show. Um, And uh, I think it's pretty representative of what kind of music we'll end up seeing on the Muppet show itself, uh, except that electric mayhem doesn't exist yet. What I thought was really interesting. The first song that they performed early in the episode is love is a simple thing, which comes from, a Broadway musical called New Faces of 1952. And this song was a, a you know, a, a minor hit in the sense that it got covered by a bunch of people, Carmen McRae, Debbie Reynolds, a bunch of jazz singers. New Faces was a review. Uh, so, you know, it was um, scenes and sketches, not unlike what the Muppets do. It was in 52, it was something that was being brought back after having been, uh, off the scene for about a generation. Like there had been a New Faces series, I think in the 30s. And New Faces of 52 introduced a ton of uh, just like outstanding talent to the scene, including uh, Mel Brooks, who's one of the writers, Sheldon Harnick, who went on to write uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Eartha Kitt. Although the show itself hasn't really left as big a mark as other shows from the 50s, the talent that it gave birth to or that it introduced to the scene uh, really did go on to, to make big impressions. I don't know by 1974, whether that connection would have been super present for viewers. If they would have seen this and think like, Oh yeah, they're sort of also introducing, you know, the, the Muppet new faces, or this is introducing new talent. Uh, but even as a, a, a subtle subconscious connection, I, I like that as a way to introduce. So this is a probably a good point to mention that if you uh, go to our website, go to our social, you'll find a link to our new playlist of original versions and older cover versions or other cover versions of the songs featured in Muppet episodes. So you can hear the whole version of love is a simple thing from the original cast recording. And I think I gave you Carmen McRae's version as well uh, to get a sense of uh, what this song sounds like when it's not Muppets. So that's one of the more recent, although not the most recent song uh, in the episode. I think the one of the the two older songs uh, comes next. And Michal, why don't you tell us a little bit about Froggy Went Accordin? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that this is the oldest song uh, featured in this episode in that it is uh, several hundred years old. Uh, Froggy uh, Froggy Accordin is a folk song that's been around for hundreds of years. And it has evolved, as folk songs do, in many, into many different directions and variants, uh, two of which are performed on The Muppet Show. Uh, Froggy Wena Corton is performed here, and uh, is it in the Florence Henderson episode? Is that right? Um, and uh, Froggy Would A Wooing Go is the other main variant of this folk song, which is a totally different set of lyrics and a totally different melody. And uh, that's the UK spot in the... Christopherson Rita Coolidge episode. Um, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole looking up this song. Uh, I found a website that this guy had been maintaining for 20 years where he was collecting. Um, he ended up with um, an amalgamated version of the song with over 170 verses from 29 different sources. And he was very straightforward that this this website was just Froggy Central. And if you find a new source, just email him at Frog. It was uh, the world of folk singers is um, rich with nerds in this interesting parallel universe to the way the, um, the Muppet fandom world is. Um, what else can we say about Froggy Wena Corton? I mean, there are a lot of different, um, not just versions of the song, but also kind of versions of the story. In some of it, it's about uh, a frog and a mouse, but in some of them, it's about two birds. Uh, Various things happen to the frog and the mouse. Sometimes they get married, sometimes they die. 
sometimes, <laughs> as the guy who maintained that Froggy Central website uh, asked, uh, did they die a slow death in the distended belly of a snake, or did they come to an even more unbearable end, forced to live out their last days in France? <laughs> we may never know the truth. So it's uh, fair to say there's a long history to this song. I mean, Froggy Went Accordion also is an unfortunate earworm because of the uh-huh, uh-huh. It just makes it so easy to get stuck in your head. And it is interesting that the aha uh-huh is not a feature of every version of this song. And if you look up the song on Wikipedia, there's like a little list of these are the people who sing it with aha, uh-huh, and these are the people who sing it with woohoo, and these are the people who sing it with hee hee. And uh And there was a King Kong Kitchy Kitchy Kaimio yes. as well. Bob Dylan probably the most famous to do the aha uh-huh variant. So uh that's the one you'll find on our playlist. We're still figuring out what second version, but it might be the thing that Michal just said that I cannot repeat because I do not remember it. I was in a froggy one a court and pageant in first or second grade and my job was to sing the uh-huh. So <laughs> this brought back really unfortunate memories. So part of me is desperate to move on, but I, I part of me has to know what is a froggy one according pageant? Oh, it was just a like a like a an elementary school play essentially it's just that they taught us all the song and had uh various kids act it out and it, it was one of those things that was really uncomfortable in the moment too because i was just like we're doing this because the adults find it funny right <laughs> and to make matters worse they videotaped it and they put it on like like cable access or something so i remember no. like like a month later like turning on the tv and being like no not again christy do you want to intro real life girl in the the episode it's uh sung by uh mia farrow and our friend thog uh and it's very sweet it, they just do a little like pa to do and and sing it um but uh real life girl comes from little me is that that's correct uh which uh was uh Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee um and it's very sweet it's the song in, it, of all of the songs in the episode it's the one that i uh enjoyed the most for sure and it's also the one that's sort of the most focused on valentine's day because it's introduced by dogs sending mia a valentine which is called a valentune and then they sing it on a set that's all like hearts made out of doilies with a big happy valentune sign behind them uh it's interesting that this song was introduced in little me by sid caesar who was one of the kings of the variety shows in the uh 50s and 60s so um you know again like i don't know if there was a conscious connection they were trying to draw in people's memories that you know we are the inheritor of this tradition. Uh, you know, his show is your show of shows, but at least for me watching it, that's sort of where my brain went. After that, we get the second oldest song in the show, which is enduring young charms, which is a song that dates back to, uh, 1808, uh, by Thomas Moore, which is another painful Mia Farrow performance. Michal, I feel like you also had, some things to say about this song yeah i <laughs> well again the first time i watched it it didn't really make any impression on me i was like this is this is the boring song the the requisite boring song of this episode and we just need to get through it <laughs> i went to look it up later and i discovered that it is used uh so often in looney tunes that it is a trope um it has become known as the xylophone gag where the your Yosemite Sam or Daffy Duck is uh, setting up a trap um, for Bugs Bunny or the Roadrunner, uh, complete with uh, over the xylophone or the piano. There are there is sheet music for endearing young charms, and when you go up that chord and hit the C at the top, da, 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 uh, that note is rigged with a bomb. So the character is um, supposed to explode however they can't seem to hit that note correctly and the villain says no let me do it myself you're not doing it right uh and then wiley coyote or your somebody sam or daffy duck uh then uh is hoisted by their own bomb petard this happens so frequently in looney tunes that i would be astonished if 
Jerry Jewell and the other writers of this episode were not familiar with the xylophone gag. So now what bugs me about this sketch is that nobody explodes. It's the Muppets. They're doing a known explosion gag and there are no bombs and it bothers me. I wonder if they had originally intended it to be a bomb gag and then one of their lawyers was like, you can't, they own that gag. We can't open ourselves up to litigation. That would be interesting. You know, what's funny is my association with the song is not Looney Tunes, although now that you're saying it, it's all coming back to me. But with it being the introduction to uh, the song Come on Eileen, which came out probably oh, yeah. 10 years later, it's it's instrumentally the introduction. And then uh, on the album version of the song, it the, the fade out is the singer actually singing the first like four, three or four lines of uh, Endearing Young Charms. Ooh. <laughs> heard come on eileen many more times than i've heard endearing young charms and i never thought about it but now i'll hear it every time yeah this is a song that i wouldn't say that i'm familiar with except that it sounds like a song that i've known my whole life so it's probably both shirley temple also did it in one of her movies gotta love the public domain yeah uh, and then the show ends with the most recent song that they'll perform, which is I Got Love from uh, another Broadway musical, Pearly, from 1970. I was like the song Melba Moore sang it in the show. And then uh, they did a TV version in 1981, if you want to see what it originally looked like. More recently, it was featured in season two of Smash. Uh, I just think it's a fun, uh, upbeat show tune. It's a little weird in the Muppet context because everything is a little weird in the Muppet context. I don't think the Muppet version is one that I would ever like, you know, pull up to listen to for fun. But there well, we and it is about George and his mom. I mean, it's the finale of the episode, but it's it's coming out of the George and his mom scene, um, which just makes it super weird. <laughs> All right, so this is sort of a disjointed episode of our podcast, but it makes sense because it's also sort of a disjointed episode of television. Uh, that said, as we get ready to wrap up, does anyone have any final thoughts they want to share? Get Kermit out of Cleveland. The question is, who cares? Thanks for joining us on the Muppet Turgy podcast. We promise it only gets better from here as we get into the Muppet show proper. The show gets better. Will we get better? I don't know. We'll find out. To be determined. Thanks for sticking with us for an hour. <laughs> you can help us get better by telling us what you think. You can find us at Muppeturgy on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us on the web at Muppeturgy.com, or you can email us at podcast at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer, and this episode was edited by me, David Levy.